Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Jason Stevens. Uh, I am a visiting assistant professor of political science and history at Ashland University. Uh, welcome to our March episode of this year's Saturday webinar series, which we call American Controversies. By bringing together thoughtful scholars with differing points of view, we, we hope to have a discussion, a conversation uh, about historically important issues that still resonate in the current classroom. We encourage all of you out there watching us uh, today to, to join us in that conversation uh, by submitting questions via the Q&A box. Uh, note, right, please don't submit questions via the chat box. Please use that Q&A box, and we will uh, try to get to as many of them as we can during the, the course of the program over the next hour and 15 minutes or so. And then uh, following up uh, on our program this morning, within the next week or so, you will receive an email with links for further reading, uh, as well as a link to this archived video and audio uh, from our program today. In the registration form, we linked to the various speeches, the letters, the other writings that we're using for today's conversations, the documents that we're going to be rooting our conversation in. Many of them are also available at Teaching America, uh, Teaching American History's extensive document database located at teachingamericanhistory.org or tah.org. Uh, or in our core document collection. <clears throat> Today, we've got a really interesting question uh, online here. Uh, we will be discussing, do American ideals require American intervention abroad? That's our question for this morning. And joining me on our panel is David Hadley, Assistant Professor of Security Studies at National Defense University, uh, as well as David Krugler, Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin-Platteville. Uh, both of them are our old friends of teaching American history. Uh, they are also uh, faculty members in Ashland University's master's program in American history and government. Uh, and so, David and David, uh, very happy to, to have both of you back with us uh, here this morning. Thank you, Jason. It's great to be here. Thanks, Jason. Uh, really good to be here. Uh, just as a quick note, uh, everything that I say is just my own commentary, nothing represents the policy or position of the National Defense University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Okay, very good to know. All right, well, well, gentlemen, thank you both for uh, joining us uh, here this morning. So our, our guiding question for our conversation today, do American ideals require American intervention abroad? Uh, just as an opening question to, to get the ball rolling, so to speak, um, help, help us understand a couple of things. First of all, what is the question asking? What is it that we're we're actually going to be talking about today? Just to make sure we're all on the same page, and so that our audience knows exactly what they're getting into this morning. So, what what is the question asking? Do you think? And and also, why is this an important question for all Americans, teachers, students, and citizens? Uh, why is it an important question for all Americans to to think seriously about? I think one way to frame it, um, Jason and David, is to think of the most famous phrase from the Declaration of Independence that all are entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We might mold that into this question. Is that a global right? And is it the obligation of the United States to ensure that others who live outside um, the sovereign borders of the United States or its territory um, 
are in an environment under a government of by and for the people that enables life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Is it a duty of the United States to do this? And if so, how? I, I agree. And I think that there's another kind of you know, factor going on is when we're asking this question about whether you know, there's an ideal driving us to intervene, there's a kind of, I think, larger question of why do nations act the way that they do in the international scene? You know, what, what, what guides our foreign policy? Uh, and so we have a kind of idea of is intervention demanded by our ideals or are we talking about cases of national interest? How does national interest and ideology uh, kind of, how do those two things work together to guide what we're actually doing in the world? We should also focus on the word intervention. Many people might interpret that as military action, but it, although it does often include and um, other military action, it's not a prerequisite. There are many forms uh, of intervention. The United States can uh, support a fledgling democratic government uh, in other ways. Um, so we need to define the type of intervention um, as we look at specific cases. Yeah, there's also monetary intervention, just providing support for others, right? Maybe not in a military capacity, but but just by uh, you know lending other support, other resources to that end. It's interesting that you go back to the Declaration of Independence, right, to find out what these American ideals are, right? David, you mentioned right these principles of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That in the Declaration of Independence, right. This one, people, we claim to hold those truths to be self-evident. So there's this particular aspect of the declaration, but then there's there's also a universal aspect because we declare that these are are truths, that these are rights that that apply to all peoples everywhere, right? And if that's true, does that does that assume some sort of moral duty on the United States to help protect those rights for others around the world who may not be able to? to seek them their, themselves. So um, again, I, I just want to remind our audience, you know, we, we're getting some questions into the, uh, the, the Q&A box. Please keep those questions coming and we'll try to get to as many of those as we can. Uh, so, so take us back if you, if you don't mind, right? So we mentioned the Declaration of Independence. Take us back to the American founding, if you don't mind, right? To, to try to begin to answer this question. How did, how did the American founders approach this question about what are the proper principles of foreign policy that ought to guide the United States in their relationships with other foreign powers around the world. So one of the documents that we looked at uh, today was was George Washington's farewell address. What kind of message do we get from the founders or what sort of answer do we get from the founders in regards to our, our question, do American ideals uh, require American intervention abroad? How would they answer the question? The first thing we should keep in mind is that the, the founding wouldn't have occurred without foreign intervention ah. uh, on, the behalf, on behalf of the revolutionaries here in the, in the British colonies. Uh, French support, the French crown support for the revolution was crucial. Um, and then when we yeah, I, about, I believe there were more French soldiers at Yorktown than there were American soldiers, right? I'm not sure of that, but mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you do have international participation, Poles, Germans, um, and, and French, uh, fighting for the American Revolution. Um, and then when we look at, at Washington's farewell address, um, it's really interesting to note how much of it is devoted 
to foreign affairs. Uh, we might think that the first president presiding over uh, the constitutional government, which arises out of the wreckage of the Articles of Confederation, might focus solely on, on domestic affairs and, and how to continue uh, to build uh, Republican uh, government, small r. Um, but because uh, the fledgling nation was um, uh, situated um, in a hostile world with lots of hostile great powers around it, um, this was a necessary topic. And to that point of domestic politics, I, I think it's also interesting to consider just how concerned I think we can see Washington with is, is not just the kind of practical questions of U.S. involvement in the world, but it's going to influence our domestic politics as well. That factions within the United States and, you know, as we can see in, you know, not just this, but in the Federalist Papers, that the fear of factionalism as such a kind of uh, early idea going on in the, the founding generation that you have sympathies for a foreign power having domestic consequences at a time when the political system is, you know, still in its nascent stages uh, and might not be able to healthily handle such kind of, uh, uh, you know, domestic quarrels that arise from foreign affairs. Yeah, as, as Washington puts it, um, in um, the address as we have it excerpted on the TAH website. Against the insidious wiles of foreign influence, I conjure you to believe me, fellow citizens, the jealousy of a free people ought to be constantly awake since history and experience prove that foreign influence is one of the most baneful foes of Republican government." Uh, end quote. That reminds us that uh, this was um, a unique experiment uh, the founding and the building of a Republican government and, and, and those hostile foreign influences um, were seeking to undermine it. Yes, and, and David Krugler, you mentioned French support for the American Revolution. Uh, but during their own revolution, um, George Washington famously issued right his his proclamation of neutrality. Right. Saying that not that America is going to take an ostrich like stance, right, keeping our head buried in the sand, uh, but we are going we're not going to take a side. We're not going to to enter the conflict um, that re resulted from the from the French Revolution right, that embroiled many of the European nations in, in war. Uh, Washington's position was we're going to be neutral. We're not going to enter uh, the contest on on either side. Um and and that that idea, among others, Washington expounds upon here in his his um, farewell address. I'm noticing we're we're getting a, a more more questions into the Q and A box, so please keep those coming. Uh, one line that stood out to me, gentlemen, from this speech um, is where Washington, right among among many uh, pieces of advice from an old and affectionate friend, as he says, he says he says this: uh, if we remain one people under an efficient government. The period is not far off when we may defy material injury from external annoyance, when we may take such an attitude as will cause the neutrality we may at any time resolve upon to be scrupulously respected, when belligerent nations under the impossibility of making acquisitions upon us will not lightly hazard the giving us prov provocation, when we may choose peace or war as our interest guided by justice shall counsel. 
And it's that that's la- it's that last line that's especially striking to me, where Washington says, "When we may choose peace or war, as our interests guided by justice shall counsel." What do you take him to to mean by that? Because that seems important that there are these these two twin aspects for well, when will America get involved in peace or war? It's when our interest as well as justice requires it. Help us understand what Washington's talking about there. I think at the risk of jumping too far ahead that we can kind of see a prime example here uh, with FDR and the four freedoms speech with this idea that, you know, you are facing a foe that from FDR's perspective is against, you know, everything that the United States stands for uh, that, you know, kind of against these kind of fundamental ideals. And it's not just a question of we disagree with them as they pose an active threat to us as well. Uh, that Roosevelt's warning is that, you know, the world has changed. The Atlantic Ocean isn't the protection that it used to be. It's, uh, you know, partly in this speech, but in, you know, a recurring theme around, you know, the fall of 1940 and the spring of 1941 in Roosevelt's arguments is, you know, we have a serious threat from the Nazi regime that the, you know, rapid fall of France really changed the kind of the circumstances that the United States expected to prevail. Uh, And so this together means that we support the British in the sense that we have a similar ideological inclination. We have a similar heritage. We have a shared heritage in in many ways. Um, And it's also good for us if they're fighting the Nazis and not, you know, surrendering at this point in, in late 1940. You know, it's it's in our national interest for the British nation to remain in the fight. Um, now, of course, that sometimes also, you know, when when Soviet Union gets invaded, I don't think we've got much in common uh, with, with Joseph Stalin, but interest there kind of prevails. Yeah, that you know, the passage you you read, Jason, is is one of the reasons this speech is held up as an early example of realism in American foreign policy, right? Um, let your interests guide actions, um, not passions. Uh, earlier, Washington urges all to be dispassionate in the conduct of foreign affairs. But um, there's that word justice. How does one define that? So that's where idealism creeps in. I think the paragraph that precedes the one you read is, is equally significant. I think here, Washington proposes an ideal foreign policy that is a fraught with contradiction. Um, we must keep in mind that Washington is not calling for the United States to isolate itself. The great rule of conduct, he says, um, in regard to foreign nations is in extending our commercial relations to have with them as little political connection uh, as possible. Um, and I think therein lies the contradiction is it possible to solely conduct commercial relations with other nations and not become entangled in their political situation? Um, Jumping forward as well, but to the other world war of the 20th century, this is the problem the United States faces for uh, the first three years or almost the first three years of, of the Great War, what we call World War I. Is it possible to trade with all sides and 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 not get entangled um, in the conflict. That's interesting. So, what's the difference between 
what we would typically call today isolationism and what Washington refers to as neutrality, right? Neutrality seems to be one of the principles of American foreign policy, at least from Washington's point of view. But that doesn't mean, as he states here, and right as, as you both have, have clarified for us, that doesn't mean strictly isolationism, which I believe that ism is not a term that comes into the popular lexicon in, until right the early 20th century, right, in regards to World War I. Um, a nation can be neutral looking after its own interest um, while not yet being isolationist. Um, can we can we try to unpack that a bit, especially maybe in light of a question that has just come into us uh, via the, the Q&A box? And again, everybody out there, please keep those questions coming. Uh, this person asked, how much did the Hamilton-Jefferson quarrels drive early American foreign policy? In terms of the question of kind of isolationism as opposed to neutrality is I think that what the kind of the key difference there is commerce, that there is a, a sense of, you know, true isolationism isn't just not getting involved in the quarrels of the world, but trying to limit the extent to which the United States has any kind of foreign influence, whether that be movement of peoples or goods uh, with the um, uh, the pursuit of autarky as a economic principle. You know, one of the people that comes to mind with this is, you know, so we're talking about the uh, Cold War, George Kennan, who writes the long telegram that lays out the need to contain the Soviet Union in 1946. You know, by the end of his career, he'd become kind of thoroughly disillusioned with U.S. involvement abroad and became a, a true isolationist in the sense that he wanted the United States to, as much as was feasible, cut itself off from the rest of the world, you know, prevent any kind of immigration intercourse, be as independent and self-sufficient as it was possible to be. Part of that as a result, I think, you know, I don't want to psychoanalyze the man, but of some of the consequences of getting involved in the world for, you know, trying to intervene for our ideals. Yeah, I think, um, you know, for Washington and in the state of the world, what's common in the conduct of international relations in the, in the late 18th century uh, to make um, military alliances um, with um, other powers in, in order to weaken one's enemy and, and to find um, alliance through having a common enemy. And, and, and that's what's of great concern to uh, Washington. And in terms of the, the Hamilton-Jefferson quarrels, um, you know, Washington was, was really upset with uh, French actions during the revolution, with the Citizen Genet uh, affair, for example, um, and, and the way Jefferson, um, as Secretary of, of State, uh, expresses open support for the ideals of the French Revolution uh, and sees common ground there. This is exactly what Washington is saying we want to avoid. We want to isolate ourselves from that through neutrality, um, but we want to have the most beneficial engagement um, with the rest of the world in terms of commercial trade. But that, um, while Washington is president and, and after, um, drags the United States close to the continental wars, um, engulfing the, the great powers of Europe. And even somebody like Jefferson was not in favor of America getting involved militarily 
in the in in support of the the French Revolution. Correct. I mean, he and Hamilton had had different views on the the status of the French treaties, right, from the American Revolution. Um, but neither one was calling for America to to get involved abroad in another nation's affairs in order to help set other men free. Correct. Oh yeah, absolutely. That that mm-hmm. is not what's being called for, and, and you know the United States just doesn't have the military to do that. I mean, there's yeah, no that... army to speak of, and uh, its its navy can't match Great Britain. I, I've I've got a hypothetical here. I, I I love dealing in hypothetical questions because I can never be wrong when I answer them because you can't <laughs> prove that I'm wrong. But so the argument from the founders, we don't get involved in other nations' affairs unless it actually involves our own interest, right? That unless the rights and interest of our own people are at risk, we don't get involved abroad. And and one of the arguments we've said why that is a good, prudent policy is because the United States doesn't have the military capacity, right, that would support such an endeavor. What if we did have such a military capacity, right? Looking at the United States today, Right, which does have the most powerful army on earth. Does that then change our does that have an effect? Does that change our foreign policy principles? Or are these these principles that the founders putting forth here for us, are these permanent regardless of our capacity, our military capacity? I think that passage you read earlier from Washington's farewell address has a kind of interesting answer to this, and in that as Washington conceives it, uh he because he says that uh this point that we may at any time resolve upon to be scrupulously respected when belligerent nations under the impossibility of making acquisitions upon us will not lightly hazard the giving us provocation. He's talking about a time when the United States will be powerful enough. You know, Washington is a realist. He recognizes the limited power that the United States has at the time, but the potential is something that he's recognized. There will be a point where we're strong enough. And that strength is in order to get our neutrality respected in his eyes that we kind of see starting off with the the Wilson approach in World War One of, you know, we want our neutrality respected. And, you know, the potential power of the United States is what we're going to be, um, you know, resting upon. But then you get into with, you know, Franklin Roosevelt and LBJ and just the speeches here that we have under discussion, but as this kind of broader trend, uh, that I do think that they represent a shift from the principle of neutrality to we have to support actively regimes that are like us, even if that's also in our, it's you know ideologically correct and it is within our own interest to do so. So that you see a kind of, you know, uh, an, an inverse relationship, you know, Washington wants strength to be able to be neutral and Roosevelt and Johnson and Pretty much every president after Franklin Roosevelt sees that strength as being something that gives us a responsibility to take action of some kind. I think too, um, there is in the in the early stages of the republic a, a belief that the principles on which the U.S. has founded speak for themselves and and will spread themselves, um, and and they need no carrier. They don't need the United States military to carry them. They don't need U.S. power to do that. We really see that in in John Quincy Adams' speech from from um, 1821. Adams calls the Declaration of Independence, quote, a cornerstone of a new fabric 
destined to cover the surface of the globe, end quote. And when you isolate that statement, I mean, that sounds like a robust call for intervention um, in furtherance of American uh, ideals. But when you place it in the context of Adam's whole speech, um, he's talking about um, the destiny of freedom that, that uh, humans will find a way to get there on their own. The United States can serve as a model and say, look, we succeeded in setting this up. Um, we're doing this now and you should too, but we're not gonna come force it upon you. Um, the speech's most famous line, which isn't actually in the excerpt we have on our, our website, uh, is the one that uh, states America does not, goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. And I think one of the other critical things we see in this Adams piece is how much this is a, an evolution, that he's placing the Declaration of Independence within you know, centuries of development reaching this point. So you have a kind of, you know, a, a teleological path for this, this idea to spread that you go from the Reformation, mm -hmm. he talks about the, the, you know, the way in which the English Civil Wars, um, you know, led people to flee to America, that, you know, the United States, the Declaration of Independence is coming from this heritage, uh, this, this evolution that's been going on in Europe and has started uh, in the new world. That idea suggests, I think, the kind of continuing evolution of the ideal past just the United States, that the United States is the first to enact these principles, but they are natural principles that are progressing along a historical path. That's really interesting, right? So you, you both have pointed us to this John Quincy Adams piece. So let's let's go there, this 1821 uh, Independence Day address. So that's the perfect transition to our next document. Thank you both. I'll pay you later. Uh, so John Quincy Adams, he is speaking here about, um, he's asking the question, what has America done for the benefit of mankind? And as you both have intimated here, um, Adams focuses in on these principles of the Declaration. And it turns out from Adam, Adams's point of view is that America could do more for the spreading of freedom around the world not by getting involved, not by intervening militarily or monetarily around the world in in revolutions or in in places uh, for people that right whose causes we may support, right? Who in in principle we we are with you, as he says, sort of our our thoughts and our prayers and our our benedictions go out to these poor oppressed people around the world fighting for their own freedom. Um, but our our principles also require us to protect the rights of our, of our own people. That the best thing America can do for the spreading of freedom is not to get involved militarily around the world, but to be the standard, to be an example that a free people can rule themselves. So the free people can be prosperous uh, in order to inspire others around the world to do what America has done. And so he says this, again, I don't think this portion is from our, our online version of the text, uh, but in his in his speech, he says this, wherever the standard of freedom and independence has been or shall be unfurled, there will her heart, her benedictions and her prayers be. But she goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. She is the well-wisher to the freedom and independence of all. She is the champion and vindicator only of her own. She will commend the general cause by the countenance of her voice and the benignant sympathy of her example. So uh, 
John Quincy Adams, he's not a founder, right? He's the, the son of a founder, a prominent founder, John Adams. But that sounds like a sentiment that the founders themselves would, would be behind, right? That America must look after her own interest first. And so if, if maybe we could try to unpack what John Quincy Adams is, is talking about here, especially in light of a question that has just come into us from the Q&A box, asking about, okay, what does, what does it mean for something to be within the compass of our interest, um, do the economic interests of our country stimulate interventionist policies more so than other reasons this person asks? So I guess the question is, what do we mean, right? We'll act for our own interest, but not beyond that. What, how do we determine what's in America's interest? I think um, one of the points that Adams gets into that's particularly interesting that on page five uh, of the document, TAH, is when he gets into the kind of ideals of where does our sense of society come from? Where does our loyalty lie? And this kind of explanation as to why we owe more to say, you know, our neighbors and our fellow countrymen than we do to somebody in, you know, a European country. So he has this point that the first moral element then of this composition of society is sympathy between the members of which it consists. The second is sympathy between the giver and the receiver of law. The sympathies of men begin with the relations of domestic life. They are rooted in the natural relations of domestic life. They are rooted in the natural relations of husband and wife, of parent and child, of brother and sister. Thence they spread through the social and moral propriquinities of neighbor and friend. Uh, going on from there, uh, basically laying out why this universal ideal is kind of naturally matching the sympathies of a self-governing kind of community, that they're able to achieve these principles because you know, they know one another and are connected to one another. And so to get to that question as to, to where the interest lies, it's really a question of, you know, is harm being done to those that we have a greater obligation to because they are our citizens, because they are our fellow people, um, than not, you know, that ties into the economic side of things because the economic system that we see developing in the Atlantic world and then, you know, the more globalized system after that means that there are members of this community that there's a sense of sympathy to that are spread throughout the world. And so that when you have not so much necessarily, I think, economic reasons for intervention, but economic intercourse brings Americans all around the world exposes them to danger and then inspires the United States to act. You know, if we think of you know, one of the first foreign operations that the United States Navy takes part in, it's a response to the Barbary pirates attacking U.S. sailors. Um, or, you know, with World War I again, with this idea that it's the death of Americans at sea uh, due to German U-boats that is really, you know, inflaming U.S. opinion. So it's a question really of is economic intercourse mean that we're extending our community you know, just through the physical members of uh, you know our society that are, are going out abroad to trade. And, and to build off that, I mean, this becomes um, a recurring challenge for the conduct of um, American foreign relations um, and um, for the ideals of the United States. Uh, how much does the government of the United States owes citizens who run into problems when they um, are conducting commercial affairs, economic intercourse, 
um, on another nation's soil or on, on the high seas. Um, if their property is seized in, in a civil war or a revolution, um, does the United States government owe those individuals action? Um, and a, a modern example of this is um, US intervention in Nicaragua during the presidency of Calvin Coolidge. Um, we don't think of Coolidge as someone conducting a robust interventionist uh, foreign policy, but he justifies American action in that instance because of um, the uh, hazards posed to uh, American ownership of industry and, and land there. And he says, you know, they undertook this risk. Um, and yet the stability of the Nicaraguan political state is important to us for other reasons. And so that's why we're going to intervene. So it, it gets messy and it gets, it gets tangled up. And um, I think this comes back to the contradiction that I believe George Washington unwittingly raised in the farewell address um, by, by declaring the possibility or the goal of um, having as much commercial interaction with the world as you want with no political connection. Yeah, that's that's very very interesting. That we mentioned the example of the the Barbary pirates. I think there's also probably the example of the the American reaction to the in the War of 1812, right? Where where Madison bases right his declaration of war, his request for a declaration of war, in large part on what is happening to to American sailors uh, abroad. What what the British are doing in pounding uh, American ships and pounding American cargo and taking American sailors uh, prisoner. We. We've got some more questions coming into the, the Q&A box, so please, everybody out there, uh, keep those questions coming. We're going to try to get to as many of them as we can. Uh, we've got one question that just came in from a, uh, it must be a teacher out there uh, who wants to, to know more about this topic. And this teacher asks, uh, I just started teaching World War II in my U.S. history classes. I try to emphasize how the, the foreign policy evolves to different forms of neutrality from the mid-1930s to the passing of neutrality acts, eventually the Lend-Lease Act, leading up to the Atlantic Charter, and eventually the transition to declaring war the day after Pearl Harbor. So this person asks, how accurate is the term neutrality, uh, given how the United States supported allies, connecting back to, to Dr. Krugler's observation that intervention is not only military military involvement. So what, what is meant by neutrality? I guess that's a fairly loose term. Is it not sort of like the interest is a fairly loose term? I don't know if either one of you or both of you want to, to address that question from a teacher in our audience. Sure. I mean, oh, go ahead, David, please. Oh, no, you, you go first. I, I immediately think of uh, Woodrow Wilson's short declaration calling for neutrality upon the outbreak of war in Europe in, in August of 1914. Uh, his is a, is a really expansive uh, definition, almost limitless. Uh, Americans should be impartial in thought and deed, uh, not pick sides. And I, I think we often understand neutrality to mean you're not picking sides. But from the get-go, the United States had picked sides. Even after he makes that declaration, Wilson gives an interview to the editor of the New York Times in which he casually says, I don't think it would be a bad thing if, if Great Britain won this war. It would be better for the world. That's hardly... <laughs> Uh, uh, the, the practice of neutrality Wilson is asking American citizens to do. Um, maybe non-involvement or non-intervention, like, at, you know, strictly meaning you're not in the war as a, an official belligerent. Uh, I, I'm just kind of chuckling at Woodrow Wilson because that's classic Woodrow Wilson for you. Um, but on a similar kind of, you know, in, in a similar time frame. I might be uh, uh, 
too frequent uh, a referencer of this document, but there's a uh, paper written by a guy named Randolph Bourne called The State, uh, in which it has the famous line, war is the health of the state. Uh, and one of the points that he, he's saying in that, I mean, Bourne's essentially an anarchist by the time that he dies, so that it's not a, that's not a good thing for the state, but that war or the threat of war causes all of these different things to kind of naturally emerge that go beyond the purposes that anybody can try to put them to. So Wilson has this very, you know, far-reaching neutral principle that, uh, you know, Dr. Kurgler was talking about. And it's really, you know, it's progressive in the sense that it believes in rationality over emotion, the ability to control your emotion through the exercise of rationality and the service of the U.S. interest. But then war has a logic its own that begins kind of a series of events that no single politician can kind of try to uh, control. I think that to look at FDR's approach and to get to the question of, you know, neutrality in, in regards to, you know, you know, prior to U.S. entry into World War II, I don't think you can fairly say it was neutral because Roosevelt kind of went with that flow. He saw the danger that the Nazi regime posed, saw that they were, you know, uh, winning effectively in 1940 and decided that we weren't going to, uh, it was not going to be in the U.S. interest to not do anything. So, I mean, when Germans complain in 1941, which they do, that the United States is violating neutrality, they've got a point there because we really are coming down heavily on any side that is fighting them. You know, one of the questions, you know, you, after Pearl Harbor is attacked, we declare war on Japan, Germany declares war on us. So one of, why are they doing that? It's because of the fact that Hitler had been expecting to go to war with us because it was clear that we were intervening. So even if it's you know a Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor that we declare war on them, he doesn't have an obligation to declare war on us. But you know, I, this might be a bit long and rambling. What it gets to is the point, I, I hope, that what Roosevelt is doing is essentially trying to get away with siding with Great Britain as much as he can without, you know, without alienating everybody in the United States who doesn't want to enter the war. Like Roosevelt knows we're going to enter the war, but he doesn't have the political capability to do so until there's a declaration. Well, there's an attack on the United States and a declaration from Germany. And we might see that example um as fulfillment of Washington's call to dispassionately assess the national interest and follow that as well as justice. Um, I think you could make a strong case that that's what Roosevelt is doing and he's seeking maximum flexibility uh, for the United States, seeking um, the most benefits possible with the least cost expended by keeping the US out of the war as, as directly out of the war as long as possible. And, and shifting gears here slightly to the to the the progressives moving maybe away from the founding and seeing how the the progressives uh, sought to change the guiding principles of American foreign policy at least from the right and in comparison to the the perspective of the American founders how did the progressives change the terms of the debate uh, we uh, we mentioned uh, Woodrow Wilson who after he urged Americans to be neutral in thought as well as action I believe in his his war message, Wilson says that 
well, we're getting involved in World War One. We're going to intervene uh, on behalf of humanity, on behalf of mankind, in order to spread democracy, right, is the famous term. And, and Wilson says, we have no selfish interest of our own to pursue, right? We don't have a dog in this fight. That seems antithetical to everything that George Washington is telling us in his farewell address and everything the founders seem to, to take to heart in, in foreign policy, where, yeah, you only get involved if your interests guided by justice counsels you to get involved. Now, here's Wilson. We don't have a, a document here from Wilson, so this is a bit unfair to, to get into to Wilson so much. But Wilson's argument is, if you follow the founders, that seems to be a, a fundamentally selfish point of view, right? The real, a, a good and just foreign policy would be one that doesn't let your interests guide you, but where you, right, let the world and what the world requires guide your actions. We're not getting involved for ourselves, but on behalf of on behalf of others. And when looking at other documents that we do have today from the early American progressive period, I'm thinking here of uh, in support uh, of an American empire uh, by Albert uh, Beveridge, an early American progressive um, uh, Republican, I believe, from Indiana, uh, if I'm right about that. Um, Beveridge seems to, again, um, contradict some of the fundamental foreign policy principles that the founders had had left us. And really, right, you're creating new principles of American foreign policy to to guide us. How how do the progressives, maybe Beveridge, Wilson, others that you you gentlemen want to bring up, how do they change the terms of this foreign policy debate? Well, I, I love that question, Jason, because it really gets us, drives us to the heart of what Beveridge is doing here. As he is a progressive imperialist, and and this is um, an unabashed call for the United States to exercise its power and gain territories, enrich itself commercially, um, but also militarily. As he says in the first paragraph, the Philippines are ours forever. At the time he speaks, the U.S. is uh, fighting a brutal war to keep uh, the Philippines. Uh, why are we doing this? Uh, beyond the Philippines are China's unlimited markets. So there's the economic argument, but that's just the beginning. For Beveridge and other progressive imperialists, they have to overcome the glaring contradiction, the glaring hypocrisy of the United States forcing its control over people who don't want it. And voices like Jane Addams and Mark Twain are calling out this contradiction. And the way Beveridge resolves it is by using scientific racism and declaring that the, the people of the Philippine Islands, its indigenous peoples, are incapable of self-government. Uh, I think this is the, the heart of the document. And, and, and if you accept that, right, like people of the time agreeing with Beveridge, then there's no contradiction as they see it. Um, so you can assert this control, deny people self-rule um, in a flagrant uh, defiance uh, of, of the founding principles because you believe they can't are not fit to rule uh, themselves. We can we can take a look at some of the language beverages uses you know, in this in this document because it's pretty striking. Yeah, and what I'd add is that there's a kind of um, you know a perverse reality in terms of the fact that the principles of the Declaration weren't you know perfectly applied by the founding generation becomes to beverage a justification for you know, this kind of you know, transmutation of those principles into justifying rule. It's like, well, the founding fathers 
obviously, if they didn't extend this kind of, you know, um, you know, consideration for the Indians, for example, then, well, it must have been right. And we see in Theodore Roosevelt and his speech, The Strenuous Life, uh, you know, he brings up this argument that, you know, people arguing against the annexation of the Philippines would have argued against the expansion of the United States westward, would have argued against U.S. control or U.S. governing uh, you know, native populations. And so it becomes this kind of line of argument that, well, we did those things and we have these principles. So those things must have been in line with our principles somehow. And we'll like come up with this explanation for how we can, we can match those realities of American history with the principles that have been, you know, uh, articulated at the, at the founding. Right. I mean, I love that phrase transmutation because beverage is using um, a similar metaphor to explain why the people of the Philippine islands are, are unfit. Um, as he says in about the middle of the speech, referring to Filipinos, they are not capable of self-government. How could they be? They are not of a self-governing race. Um, and we should um, focus on that phrase, a self-governing race. I mean, here Beveridge is saying, and this is a widespread view, um, that you had to be of a certain race to be capable of self-rule, um, that it's inherent to you on the basis uh, of, of, of race. Um, he uses the word alchemy, right? I mean, alchemy is um, chemically impossible. Base metals can't be turned into gold. Um, and uh, this is how he uses the metaphor. What magic will anyone employ to dissolve in their minds, meaning uh, Filipinos, to dissolve in their minds and characters those impressions of governors and governed which three centuries of misrule has created? This is a reference to the Spanish. What alchemy will change the oriental quality of their blood and set the self-governing currents of the American pouring through their Malay veins? How shall they in the twinkling of an eye be exalted to the heights of self-governing peoples which required a thousand years for us to reach? Anglo-Saxon though we are. So there's and, that overt language. Sorry, David. Um, to follow up with Woodrow Wilson as well, you know, in his declaration of war, he says, you know, the world must be made safe for democracy with this idea, you know, he's an early articulator of democratic peace theory. Essentially, if countries are democracies, they are less likely to go to war with one another. So in that case, you have just a kind of rational, pragmatic reason for wanting democracy to spread because people aren't going to, if they're ruling themselves, suffer the damages that war will inflict. And so they'll choose peace. But even then, when you go to Versailles, uh, there's not an idea that the European empires are going to end there. They, they employ a mandate system for places in, you know, that had been under Ottoman rule. But Wilson is not you know, kind of fundamentally opposed to this idea that we're still going to to guide because he has those same kind of, you know, scientific racist ideals that uh, obviously the people in the Middle East aren't going to be able to govern themselves. So they need these mandates drawn up and that those are going to be, um, you know, a civilizing mission, you know, very much kind of in keeping with the the white man's burden idea that, that um, you know, Rudyard Kipling had earlier articulated. We have a question that just came in about progressive imperialists like Beveridge. 
this person asked, what exactly were they up to? What were they trying to accomplish? Were they trying to unify our country militarily post-Civil War and Reconstruction? Or was was there something else going on? And and just in listening to you, you two gents talk about this, it, the way Beveridge is interpreting the Declaration of Independence, that it only applies to certain self-governing races. And in this case, regarding the Filipinos, the Declaration doesn't apply to them because they're not a self-governing race. This is what Beveridge is saying. You know, a guy like Abraham Lincoln had to deal with those same sort of arguments, that same sort of interpretation of the Declaration of Independence, that it it only applied to certain races. We had just fought a bloody civil war over this, essentially this this same question. And so um, let, let, let me you know, try to sum up as 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 we go forward here. It seems like we look at the founding and they the founders argue you get involved abroad when your interest right um, require it. And when justice requires it, those two things are essential, though, right, that you that in order to protect the rights of your own citizens, you can get involved uh, abroad. But if right, if you don't have a dog in that fight, the best thing you can do for liberty is to stay out of it. The progressives change the rules of the, the game a bit here, because although I, I still see guys like Beveridge, uh, David Hadley, you mentioned Theodore Roosevelt. Another name we might throw out there is is William McKinley. Uh, in his war message and going to to war with Spain in the first place uh, over the Philippines, you have the, this element of their argument that, um, yes, our interests are wrapped up in this, right? So Beveridge says, yeah, we have access to China's, right, unlimited markets, right? There's our interests are, are bound up in, in, these act, in this action. But also I, I sense, I see something like new here that we didn't get from the founders. Now we're getting involved militarily, not just because our own, of our own interests, but also because America has a moral obligation, a moral duty to help uplift foreign backwards foreign peoples. We're doing this not for our own good, but also for the good of others. That seems to be a new element to all of this. Um, is that correct? Is that, is that a good way of, of looking at some of these documents? McKinley justifies the, the purchase of the Philippine islands from Spain for $20 million um, as uplift. Mm. Uh, and and uh, I, I don't know how dedicated he was to that. And we really don't see it in beverage. I mean, he doesn't talk about the, the necessity of uplifting the people of the Philippine islands. He's just finding a way to shunt them to the side so that America can fulfill uh, the purposes he wants uh, in the Philippine islands and, and in the Pacific. Um, more more broadly, um, in terms of unification of the country, the the war with Spain, the the War of eighteen ninety eight, was um, lauded by many observers, including Theodore Roosevelt, um, as a, as a splendid conflict. Here to use uh, the one of the descriptors from uh, Secretary of State John Hay, calling it a splendid little war. This could unify a country uh, and also forge manliness in a, in a generation of. American men who had not yet been tested uh, by war since the Civil War was three decades uh, in the in the past. And so if you look at some of the the imagery from that period, photographs of, of aging Confederate and Union veterans sitting down together, the country is coming together uh, to, to, to fight. And, and, and Cuba, you know, freeing Cuba is presented as um, a mission of uplift, uh, though it's much more complicated than that. There's something else I'd like to add about progressivism at this time that I think it's worth keeping in mind that 
I don't think that there's really a coherent progressive philosophy. So when we talk about the, you know, the progressives, you'll have progressive imperialists and progressive anti-imperialists, that what you're really seeing in progressivism is a kind of habit of thought that's growing up, I'd argue, more than a coherent ideology that is emphasizing rationality and reason as being applied to the problems of the industrial age, that we're going to use our, our faculties in order to, you know, decide to improve our society. Uh, Walter Lippmann wrote a book, uh, Drift and Mastery, that kind of speaks to this, that drift is the idea that we're just going along with what we've inherited uh, as a society and that what we need to achieve is mastery, that is, you know, our self-direction and control. And how this gets into the, the, the question here is it does lead to in some cases, an outright dismissal of American ideals and traditions. You know, when Woodrow Wilson talks about the Declaration of Independence, uh, he says in particular, you know, it's it was just a thing between us and Great Britain at the time. Uh, and it, it only matters if we keep updating it. So you, you don't even have a, um, you know, a, a necessarily a, a goal from them of applying these principles, they'll, they'll make reference to them, but there's a large part of what is kind of going on here saying like, we are going to argue based on what's necessitous and what's reasonable right now, rather than care too much about what's been done in the past. Now you can go to different places with that. And, you know, you, so you have progressive imperialists and progressive anti-imperialists, you have progressive eugenicists and anti-eugenicists, you know, it, it's not that you're coming to the same answers among this group of people, but whatever the answer is, it's still not necessarily rooted in tradition. It's rooted in what they think is reasonable right now. Yeah, can we can we talk a little bit more about this, the importance of this debate over governing the Philippines between the, the progressive imperialists and the, the anti-imperialists? You both have, have commented that there's not this right clear line of demarcation between the two sides they sort of it's a strange collection of political bedfellows on both sides from the anti-imperialist you have folks like mark twain jane adams william jennings bryan uh and others um what were the arguments of the the anti-imperialist over this over the the question of of governing the philippines george hoare is another one i believe hoare and, and beverage get into this interesting series of, of senate debates on the question the speaker of the house's name who's who's escaping me again was who's escaping me it, it, it he was again part of uh, this anti-imperialist movement in the united states what were some of their strongest arguments in addition to referencing the um, Declaration of Independence, um, there were uh, arguments that, um, and here we could bring in another figure, um, William Jennings Bryan, mm -hmm. um, who gives a, a stirring speech against imperialism and, and says, he, we're going to undermine our founding because it takes a large standing army um, to maintain this control. Um, that requires taxes. Uh, and so both are a threat to liberty. There were um, racial arguments. Um, so you have um, um, Democratic senators from the uh, South who are saying, we can't absorb these territories because we don't want people of, of color becoming uh, American. So it is this, and, and this is why the anti-imperialists aren't able to get a lot of traction because they have so many different motives for their position that they're not able to cohere around something, even with the support 
of Andrew Carnegie, who is also an, an anti-imperialist, you know? So, I mean, we don't often think of Andrew Carnegie and, and Jane Addams having similar interests, but in this case, they did, but it wasn't enough to sustain um, um, uh, a, a full opposition to, to taking the Philippines. And on the other side of that is, you know, this idea of the enthusiasm of people like Roosevelt for empire had to do with, I mean, Roosevelt doesn't really make so much of a rationalist argument as uh, this is going to make men out of us. Like we, like this is what manly people are going to do. This is vigorous uh, in the strenuous life. Um, he references that what the strenuous life is, is something we should seek struggle because by struggling, we're going to improve ourselves as a race, this kind of socially Darwinistic view of things. Um, that if we stand back, we'll become as over time, and, and again, this is from Roosevelt, you know, kind of stagnant and decadent like China, and then pray to foreign powers that are more vigorous than us. Uh, and so that's why we kind of socially need to take the Philippines, whatever the, the geostrategic reasons, the social reason is to encourage strength within our population. Yeah, we, we've got more and more questions coming in from our audience. So everybody out there, please keep those questions coming. We've got several coming in about um, how does the Monroe Doctrine fit into the debate, right? In, in comparison to what we've been talking about in regards to progressive imperialism in the Philippines, how is the Monroe Doctrine's view of interventionism? How is how is that different than what we see from the, the progressive imperialists? Well, the first thing to keep in mind is that what the progressive imperialists are calling the Monroe Doctrine is not what James Monroe said. So there's a fundamental misunderstanding of, of Monroe's original uh, declaration. Uh, if you look at that portion of his State of the Union address in, in, in which it's contained, Monroe is really telling the powers of Europe, you know, you're, you're, you're in eclipse, right? You're starting to lose your colonies in the Western Hemisphere. And... Um, it's not wise for you uh, to struggle to keep them um, or to trade them among yourselves. This isn't a call to spread democracy. This is really a hard-nosed um, message to Europe that the United States is now a global power and it sees it has special interests in the Western Hemisphere, particularly the, the Caribbean. And so that then becomes in, in, in the minds of, of, of many progressive imperialists uh, a call for the United States to to spread democracy and and and, and have control uh, over over the Caribbean. Yeah, it's the the idea of the Roosevelt corollary to the Monroe Doctrine is we have the right to intervene in the Western Hemisphere to promote stability or to promote our interests. With, with regard to when the Monroe Doctrine is actually kind of originally promulgated as such. It's worth considering, again, the United States doesn't really have the military capability of backing this up, but, you know, Great Britain doesn't want other people getting, uh, you know, colonies if it doesn't have them anymore either. Uh, so you do have a kind of coherence of interest between the United States and Great Britain. I've got to just, um, so I don't know if you can see the painting behind me, but that's the USS Constitution uh, hammering the HMS Java during the War of 1812. Like, we had a developing Navy, we had a developing uh, kind of military tradition, you know, we have a longer you know, Navy that rather than kind of a standing army, 
but you can fight the British fleet one-on-one in the War of 1812. You're not going to defeat the entire British Navy, uh, not over the course of the 19th century, at least. So it's really much more, you know, Great Britain's involvement that is uh, why the Monroe Doctrine is kind of successful than anything the United States does. All right. Well, what about then, what about the later progressives, right? Guys like FDR and LBJ. We read a couple of documents from, from those two, those two presidents. Um, what basic principles of foreign policy guide their administrations? How are they, do they fall more in line with right their earlier progressive counterparts or is there sort of an attempt here to return to founding principles or are they doing something completely different? How does the, how do the terms of the debate now shift as we, we move forward into the 20th century? When we look at, just to skip to the, the most modern document, um, LBJ's speech, um, Peace Without Conquest from 1965, um, we see Johnson sounding very much like Woodrow Wilson. I mean, there's some faint echoes with Wilson's declaration of war request in, in 1917. We have no selfish aims in Southeast Asia, Johnson says, much like Wilson says, we have no selfish aims. Um, both men, in talking about those respective conflicts, say the United States is acting on behalf uh, of people who um, want uh, democracy. Um, and that's why we must uh, be there. Um, Johnson speaks, he asks this question, why must this nation hazard its ease and its interest and its power for the sake of people so far away? Um, Wilson is trying to answer a similar question. Why must we enter this conflict after staying out of it for so long? We do so because this is right for humanity. I think also kind of going on here is I see a question in the Q&A that I think is, is relevant here talking about, you know, whether there's an arrogant attitude on our part in approaching some of the problems like we see in, in Vietnam. This was very much an explanation of, you know, the journalist slash historian David Halberstam, uh, the best and the brightest that basically blames the U.S. intervention on Vietnam and um, our arrogance and assuming that we'd be able to solve problems in this foreign land that we had so little you know, experience with. But if you look at the actual internal documentation from the Johnson administration, there's a profound amount of skepticism throughout the U.S. escalation in 1964 and 1965. Uh, you know, you have people warning Johnson that this can go very badly. You have Johnson himself speaking to his old senatorial colleague, uh, Richard Russell expressing the idea that Vietnam doesn't matter to us. He doesn't have the courage, as he puts it, to to get out because uh, he he doesn't want. You know, he talks about his great society programs and this concern that getting out of Vietnam will be a political death knell uh, to everything else that he wants to accomplish. So I think that this there's also uh, here we can see again domestic and foreign are interacting with one another. You know, it's not always an easy, hard and fast line to draw between you know, what you're trying to do and what ideals you're trying to hold up between the domestic sphere and you know, foreign relations. Johnson discusses this in terms that are very kind of Wilsonian, but he's privately very, you know, I think, skeptical that 
you know, any of this matters beyond what political influence it will have in domestic U.S. politics. And, and to build off um, Dr. Hadley's great observations, we can come back to the founding in this way. Johnson does not want to, quote, lose, end quote, Vietnam, like Truman allegedly lost China. So going back to Washington's farewell address, warning about domestic factions and how that can um, distend the proper conduct of foreign relations. This is an example of it. Uh, with Johnson saying, well, I, I, I can't lose, right? I don't know if we can win, but I can't lose. I mean, that is not a recipe for success, especially if you know very little about uh, the area of the world you're trying uh, to reshape. Those are really, really great insights. So if we could step back just for a moment here, I can maybe try to sum up the debate so far, and I, I know I'm going to be painting with a rather broad and general brush here, so forgive me, but just for the sake of, of clarification. So you look at the founders. The founders seem to agree when it comes to foreign policy, America will get involved right elsewhere in the world only when our, our own interests right, are in, involved in the fight. And when justice is part of that as well, just acting for our own interest, out acting selfishly is not right. That's not a good principle of foreign policy. But as our interests guided by justice shall counsel, as Washington tells us, then later the early American progressives say, "Well, yeah, getting involved for your own interests is all fine and good, but also there's this moral responsibility to to help other nations, right? To to uplift those poor, barbarous, backwards peoples throughout the world. America has a moral duty to to get involved to help others. Uh, then, starting with Wilson, and even up through now, we see LBJ talking about. To get involved uh, abroad to serve your own interests is somehow selfish, that America needs to get involved abroad uh, only to, to serve others, to help advance humanity and civilization and, and mankind. But to follow what the founders gave us in terms of foreign policy has now become right, a bad thing. It's a selfish thing to look after your own interest, regardless of what the rest of the world uh, is uh, is going through, and so it it seems that if if all of that is is right again, I know I'm I'm painting in broad brushstrokes here. It's no wonder that I think many Americans today remain somewhat confused about the proper principles of of foreign policy for America. Is it somehow selfish to look after our own interests? Ought America to to get involved to help others, or is is that something that we? We ought to avoid, as George Washington counsels us, has right our right now that we're the strongest uh, military in the world. Does that somehow mean now that America has a moral duty to to be the the policeman of the world or not? It 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 seems to me, especially in listening to you know various uh, presidential addresses over the past I don't know you know fifty years or so, Americans remain somewhat confused on this issue where. Regardless of whether or not it's George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, uh, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, whoever, the argument that I hear is, yes, America gets involved in order to protect America, but also because we have this moral duty to help and uplift others in, a, in an unselfish way. Um, is First of all, is, is, in, my, in my understanding all of this, this correctly, and, uh, and if so um, – what does that mean for what are the best principles of foreign policy that ought to guide America forward? Again, it seems that we're somewhat confused over this. Gentlemen, I don't know if you have comments on that. 
I think you've, you've um, touched upon something very important, Jason. Um, we see that confusion um, or ambivalence uh, in um, diminishing support for um, the United States providing so much aid um, militarily and economically to Ukraine. And for the question, why is the United States providing so much support to Ukraine? Well, you can make realist arguments, right? That maintenance of the post-World War II European order, um, which the United States was a leader in, think NATO, um, first to stop the spread of communism and then to maintain peace in Europe. I mean, that's a realist reason to be there. That's in America's interests, but that's not the only justification given. Um, we have an aggressive power that is uh, seeking to liquidate um, a sovereign state, uh, which despite its troubles, uh, still can be counted as one with um, representative governmental forms. Uh, so there's the ideals. Um, and I think there's push and pull um, still going on. And um, that comes out of the 20th century, as, as well going back earlier, of course, as we've discussed. I think there's another element in here with kind of going to FDR with the four freedoms. I mean, obviously, the, the Nazi regime is a very extreme case, probably you know, just about the most extreme case that you can get to of this is an ideology that's fundamentally threatening to any other group. You know, it's one of the to reference Kennan again, you could contain the Soviet Union because they were at least capable of rational calculation. You know, they could decide not to end the world because that they had a plan they were waiting for, but that the Nazis were going to, you know, attack just because that was kind of a fundamental ideological demand from them. And the reason I'm bringing that up in the context of this kind of broader, you know, summing up moment is that the, the challenge of distinguishing between ideals and interests gets very difficult when you can make an argument, I think make a pretty sensible argument that any kind of hostile regime or ideologically hostile regime, you know, by its nature can in some way represent a threat to U.S. interests in the sense that we've seen over the course of the 20th century, this, you know, we have these growing movements, causes conflicts, and then the United States gets pulled in by its economic interests or its humanitarian interests, or, you know, a combination thereof, you know, that idea of our, our people being spread abroad and then being victimized. So that lesson was overlearned, arguably. And, you know, we have Johnson referencing that in Vietnam, this idea, like, We'll look back at Munich and you know apply the Munich analogy throughout all of our foreign affairs, but that there is a you know a lot of the history of the 20th century would suggest that if the United States is staying out, that not only is any ideology that we would like to spread not going to necessarily spread as much, but that threats will grow as well. So I, I think part of the confusion is we're trying to disentangle something that can't necessarily be disentangled. All right. Well, we're we're quickly running out of time here. We're down to our final minutes, if if you can believe it. These conversations always they always go so fast because they always prove to be to be so interesting. Uh, but in in these final minutes, gentlemen, I'm wondering um, if uh, either or both of you can um, recommend uh, some additional reading 
for our, our audience members, teachers, students, citizens, those who are interested in knowing more about this topic, what are maybe some, some good primary documents that they can look to other than those that we read for our program this morning? And what are some good secondary sources? I know some, you both have mentioned a, a, a couple of, of those as well. What's a good book maybe for somebody who wants to learn more about this topic? For progressive imperialism and the intense debate over whether or not an American empire is consistent with American ideals. I recommend Stephen Kinzer's book, The True Flag, Theodore Roosevelt, Mark Twain, and the Birth of American uh, Empire, uh, which came out a few years ago. Uh, the True, True Flag, Theodore Roosevelt, Mark Twain, and the Birth of American Empire. Uh, if you want a book that can also serve as a deadly weapon, I would recommend George Herring's From Colony to Superpower, which is basically a survey of American foreign relations from 1776 to, uh, at that point, the early 2000s when it was written. Um, Herring is, uh, he's chiefly a historian of Vietnam. He's a lot of, um, you know, by providing a broad overview, he's able to kind of locate and bring out some of these different themes. So if, you, if you're interested in a kind of uh, broad look, then the colony to superpower from colony to superpower is definitely one I'd recommend. It is like over a thousand pages though, hence the potential uses of deadly. <laughs> In terms of um, uh, an additional primary source, we've referenced it a few times this morning, um, Woodrow Wilson's um, request for a declaration of war um, in April of 1917. Hmm. Yeah, and I'd, I'd recommend there are a couple of good books out there. Uh, Walter McDougall's uh, Promised Land Crusader State is always Absolutely. a good place to start. Uh, a friend of the Ashbrook Center, uh, Patrick Garrity, uh, had a very, very good book on foreign policy called uh, In Search of Monsters to Destroy. Mm. Uh, right, The title taken from that uh, speech of John Quincy Adams that we read for today. But I think m most of all, I would recommend from uh, Teaching American History's Core Documents Collection. We have this book that, that was just published uh, recently, American Foreign Policy to 1899, Core Documents, edited by uh, our own friend um, Stephen Knott. Uh, Dr. Knott has has assembled a, a terrific collection of original primary documents on this topic of American foreign policy up to 1899. Uh, and everybody out there, you should look forward to the uh, the second volume uh, in this series on American foreign policy, which will be which will be out soon. Our core document collection can be found online uh, at tah.org. You can download a free PDF uh, on our website, or you can have a hard copy uh, mailed to you, uh, almost free of charge. Uh, I think it's around like twelve dollars or so. Uh, quite a steal uh, for what you're getting. And I see you You can uh, click the link uh, in the chat box to access our core document collection online. Well, uh, that brings us end, to the end of our uh, program. Uh, gentlemen, uh, thank you both uh, for being here this morning. Thank you for your time. Uh, thank you for your, your expertise and, and your friendship and, and trying to help us understand uh, American foreign policy better.